0: Save As, a podcast that glimpses the future of heritage conservation through the work of graduate students at the University of Southern California.
1: I'm Trudy Sandmeyer, your friendly podcast co-host. And I'm Cindy Alnick, the other half of this hosting dynamic duo. So, Trudy, (laughs) pop quiz. What do my favorite color and one of your favorite places have in common?
0: Orange. County.
1: Yes, Orange County. Brilliant. Home of Disneyland. Happiest place on earth. Happiest place on earth. We're going to talk about Orange County today. So, Zindy, what do you think of when you think of Orange County? I think of going to see the Red Sox at Angel Stadium. I think of spending an amazing afternoon with the great Alan Hess, who opened my eyes to an Orange County I had never seen before when I was an L.A. snob, and I mainly associated it with freeways and very recent... Tracked housing. Tracked housing, yes. And, I, you know, the word nondescript comes to mind, but I, like most places, if you get off the freeway and get out of your car, you'll see some amazing stuff.
0: Yeah, there's some real gems in Orange County, and... It has an incredibly rich history that, um, you know, starts, of course, with the indigenous history of the land, which underpins, you know, all of our history here in the United States. But it then moves on to some really fascinating uh, history during the Spanish and and Mexican periods here in California, and then goes on to this incredible boom period in the post-World War II years where Orange County just explodes with interesting shifts in population and lots of interesting architecture happening in those post-war years. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today.
1: Yeah, yeah, and this sort of romanticism of uh, the area's past in its architecture, which I think is interesting, and the time that it happened, you know, uh, during the Chicano Civil Rights Movement. So we're going to hear all about this from alumna Krista Nichols, who got her Master of Heritage Conservation degree last year, and her thesis is called The Enduring Romance of the Rancho. Mission Viejo, 1964 to 1967. So she'll be talking with our producer, Willa Seidenberg. So
0: sit back and enjoy a little trip down into the O.C.
2: Thank you for joining us on the Save As podcast, Krista, to talk about your thesis You are not a native of Orange County, I know. Uh, When did you move there, and what were your first impressions?
3: I moved with my family to Orange County in 2011. My first impressions were of a vast, highly dense and developed landscape. It was bewildering, actually, (laughs) because it was impossible to find a center but we uh, we eventually found San Juan Capistrano, which is well known to have a, a historic town center with the mission San Juan Capistrano at its center. And that, I think, gave us a much clearer sense of place.
2: So I haven't spent a lot of time in Orange County. A lot of it, I feel like, has been bypassing it on the I-5. And my impressions were always spread out, relatively new, although I knew that it had been full of orange groves because of its name, Orange County. But what I was so interested in reading in your thesis was its history of the ranchos and the uh, agriculture and ranching that took place there. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that early history and how that developed? so
3: the the northern part of the county those older cities really uh, grew out of small farm tracks the southern part of the county those were all massive pieces of ranch land so single landowners or a couple of landowners would own thousands of acres and these date back to at least to the mexican period um so the land here was, was mostly actually cattle ranch and also sheep ranch because it was all grasslands, rolling grasslands and chaparral. And so really ideal f- for cattle and sheep.
2: If they, if they were not growing a lot of crops, how did it get to be known for oranges?
3: So the orange groves were in the northern part of the county. And there is one of our best historians, Phil Burgandy, actually challenged the notion that Orange County was named after the orange because Orange County wasn't actually um, incorporated until 1889 and the orange growing industry didn't actually develop until just after that time or perhaps in parallel but it wasn't really um, a major focus economically until a little later. Anyway, apart from that, um, the orange groves were, were primarily on these smaller tracts of land uh, in these older farming towns in of, of Santa Ana and Anaheim and, and Orange in the northern part of the county.
2: Your thesis centers on the basic founding of Mission Viejo, and Mission Viejo kind of grew out of one ranch that you profile in particular, the Santa Margarita Ranch House. Can you give us a little bit of history about that particular ranch and the family that owned it?
3: So the Santa Margarita Ranch was, and house, um, were first in the possession of Pio Pico and Andres Pico. Of course, anyone who's familiar with California history knows that Pio Pico was the last Mexican governor of California. But before that, he was a prominent ranchero. He and his brother, Andres Pico, the two of them owned the Santa Margarita Ranch. They were um, beneficiaries of the dispersal of mission lands uh, and, and ranch lands. Once, Mexico had won its independence from Spain. And so they had the ranch from the 1840s. And it was quite a prize because it was a very large piece of land in excess of 100,000 acres. Pico's brother-in-law, uh, Juan Forster, did assume the deed of the Rancho Santa Margarita in 1864. And uh, by the time of his death in 1882, his family was un- unable to, to hold on to it. Um, his family sold the Rancho Santa Margarita. And Richard O'Neill uh, came had come down from Northern California, where he was a butcher and had actually been managing a ranch. He, I guess, he caught wind of the sale, um, and came down and looked at it. Ended up actually purchasing it with an, an associate, James Flood, who had made a killing in the silver mines in Nevada. And eventually, the O'Neill family ended up owning 50% of it. Three owners, uh, three or four owners in a very short period of time in the 19th century, only over about a 40- or 50-year period, and they all uh, did some kind of cattle ranching on the land. There were two historic adobes. One was the Rancho Santa Margarita Ranch House. It was the sort of... Uh, headquarters of ranching operations. Um, The Forsters also built a Monterey-style home that was ultimately called Las Flores adobe.
2: And what what would uh, Monterey-style be?
3: It's considered to be the first American style of home in California. So it it has an adobe structure, but... um, it Once California started to get lumber from elsewhere, they were able to put a second floor on the building. So a Monterey-style house has two floors. It tends to have a full-width balcony cantilevered on the second floor. Um, it usually had uh, shake roofs, so wood, and it was very symmetrical. In that sense, it sort of had an, a, an American colonial appearance in its symmetry. And it usually had shutters, and this one did at Las Flores Adobe had these shutters. It was actually one of the first areas on the property, on the ranch, where agriculture was undertaken. And once the O'Neills took over the land, they eventually had, they had tenants on the land, and one family in particular were tenants for a very long time. They, they grew a lot of lima beans, which of course was very popular in the late 19th and early 20th century in, um, in this part of California. An important um, event in the life of the Rancho Santa Margarita y Las Flores was um, the Second World War in 1942. Uh, A lot of the land in northern San Diego County was actually expropriated uh, by the federal government after Pearl Harbor. So that was actually turned into Camp Pendleton. The and the way it worked out with the Flood family and the O'Neill family is that they ended up with about fifty thousand acres from that division in 1942, and that was that was the acreage in Southern Orange County that ultimately became Mission Viejo and and uh, an assortment of other communities after that.
2: So by the early 1960s, they started looking around for options for their land, what they could do with their land. And they were introduced to a developer named Donald Bren. Can you talk a little bit about him and how he developed that property?
3: So um, obviously, regional development was nipping at the heels of the major landowners in, in Southern Orange County by the 1950s. And the O'Neill family, um, they, they were themselves ranchers. So they they weren't anxious to turn over their land to housing developments. But eventually it became necessary for them to do it because the county of Orange, just like counties elsewhere, they wanted to base tax on the best use for the land. And at the time, the best use was considered suburban development beginning in the 1950s, you actually see on the record some efforts to sell portions of the land. One deal did occur with um, what eventually became Cota de Casa. That had been part of the O'Neill land. Um, But otherwise, they really wanted to be involved. They didn't just want to sell the land to the highest bidder. So they did engage an engineering firm to look at what the potential was. And uh, by the time they met Donald Bren, which was around 1963, they already had a pretty good idea of what the potential was. And they meet this bright, well-connected, mover and shaker, 30-year-old Donald Bren. And the way it was explained to me by Tony Moizo, who is the O'Neill descendant who has been running what became the Rancho Mission Viejo Company, what Tony Moizo said was that, Bren was just the most convincing. He was the one with the vision that they could embrace and that they could live with.
2: So the focus of your thesis is the time frame is 1964 to 1967. Tell us the significance of those years.
3: It is a very narrow time frame, but I was really interested in narrowing in on this transition period from a time when the ranch house was really the dominant tract house, the dominant suburban house in Orange County and elsewhere, to a kind of um, embrace of historical motifs. And it made so it made sense to me just to look at... The first couple of tracks. Um, the other part of it is that Donald Brand's tenure with the Mission Viejo Company was between nineteen sixty four and nineteen sixty seven and I came to learn that he he is sort of the dominant protagonist both in um, you know the birth of Mission Viejo but also in. Southern Orange County as a whole, and specifically with the Irvine Company, where he's been
2: at the helm since the 80s. There was this shift away from the ranch houses, and that's where they started leaning more toward Spanish colonial revival, right?
3: Yeah, I wouldn't say that um, they leaned more toward it. I think you where you see a greater representation of the Spanish colonial revival is is actually later, into the 70s and 80s. Um, At this point in the late 60s, you just see a very light application of Spanish details. So the house may be a a ranch house, but it may have, you know, um, an arched entry. It would be clad in stucco, probably painted white. It could have a red tile roof, a lot of these elements wouldn't be necessarily be seen in, in a single house. You'd see them spread out in different models.
2: The O'Neills and Donald Bren formed this Mission Viejo company. And, and that's the focus of your thesis, is how Mission Viejo was developed by this company. Why did, were you attracted to telling that story?
3: First of all, I did want to focus on a topic in Orange County, um because Orange county's historic built environment has not been well studied, so I wanted to contribute to that um, because I'm a resident here, and also i I work as an advocate for preserve Orange County. I think also the the fact that it was vernacular in nature i I love high style architecture as much as anyone who studied it and Done a degree in it, but I was really interested in what the factors were that went into producing tract homes that most of us own and live in. One day I met my colleague from Preserve Orange County, uh, the architectural historian Alan Hess, at La Paz Plaza. I didn't think anything of the place where we were located, but he started to point to the features of the plaza. And he made me realize that this was an example, a late mid-century example, of ranch architecture or Spanish-inspired architecture. And that really, that I think that really piqued my interest at that point.
2: At one point in your thesis, you talk about the fact that the planners didn't want Mission Viejo to be a, quote, stereotypical development. Um, what did that mean to them and, and how did that affect the way they planned the community?
3: The developers and the planners of Mission Viejo were trying to differentiate from the tracks of homes that existed in northern Orange County and elsewhere in Los Angeles County and all over. They had enough land and, and keep in mind, it's important that the landowner was an active part of the business from the beginning. They knew that they were going to be in it for the long haul. They could afford to look at the big picture. And the ideas of master planning were very popular at the time. You know, in the post-World War II period in Europe, master planning was implemented in different ways, interpreted in different ways in different parts of Europe. In places that had been bombed, in the suburbs of London, for example, um, there there was an opportunity to create brand new towns, new towns, they called them. And America had its own tradition of Planning, Master planning with Clarence Stein, for example, rather than having disparate developments, you know, one builder building on a few acres here and another builder building a few acres there. And there being absolutely no sort of planning logic uh, in how those different communities relate to each other or even different buildings and streets you had the situation in Mission Viejo where they could actually plan out the commercial, the industrial, the residential, the institutional, all at once. And as I mentioned, you know, the County of Orange was catching up with that by putting in place a planning district ordinance in 1963 or 64, which enabled that kind of, um, of development to take place.
2: What do you feel like was the thing that made it not stereotypical? Or, were, or did they achieve that?
3: Uh, I think within individual developments, they achieved it. Um, you can see it in the variety of elevations on the houses, for example, You know, different roof forms. This is the era of the sweeping roof or the um, reverse salt box. Um, so even while you had the cross-gabled roofs of the ranch houses, you had these other two-story um, roof forms as well by the late 60s. Even in the ranch house tracks in Los Angeles and northern Orange County, you could there was always a, a choice of finishes. But, but by the time you get to the 1960s in Mission Viejo, you're you know, the sky's the limit. There's all, There are all kinds of exterior finishes, different types of paneling and stone. And so the houses really did look different from each other in a way they hadn't before. They were also larger. Um, the first developments of Mission Viejo were built on hills. This wasn't flat farmland. And they really did try and keep the undulation of the land that that creates some in, you know some interest some 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 landscaping interest
2: When they were marketing Mission Viejo to homebuyers, there was implicit in the the marketing campaign a lot of cultural appropriation of the Mexican and Rancho era. Can you talk a little bit about that? This was the period of burgeoning of social movements, like the Chicano
3: social movement, which I think began in Los Angeles. Uh, which was essentially a civil rights movement. It was also, you know, at a a kind of self empowerment movement and a reaction to the appropriation of material culture, which had been going on for decades in Southern California. Um, you know, we we had been using Mexican and Spanish material culture. Uh, to sell Southern California for, you know, since the early 20th century, if not before that, before that, actually. And so in Mission Viejo, you know, there, there is this contrast between this Chicano movement going on and Mission Viejo, which was adopting the, the Spanish street names. They were trying to simulate adobe in some of their um, landscape elements and, and, uh, and buildings. There was a very um, popular ad that was used that was as of a woman dressed in the clothing of a va- vaquero. <laughs> and um, So there was definitely an attempt to capitalize on what we think of when we think of the romance of
2: the past here in Southern California. So you made a point in the thesis to describe the entryway into Mission Viejo, the La Paz entry, uh, and, and that there was a lot of thought given to how people would access the town. Can you describe what you see when, when, or what you saw when you entered the town when it was built?
3: So uh, this was really important to Brent, to, in particular, to have a kind of destination Created for people who were coming from uh, mostly Los Angeles and the northern cities in Orange County, and so um, Bren wanted to create something that was uh, that looked special, that still looked like the countryside, but was still a design landscape. And so you'd you'd get off the five and you'd cross a bridge because the the train tracks were there um, below the bridge. And you would be greeted by a carved wood sign that said Mission Viejo. And there were um, these curved masonry walls, which were made of a slump stone. They were called, it was called Barcelona brick. It was made to imitate adobe brick. And beyond the Barcelona walls were these round brick planters that had these very large uh, olive trees planted and the median was all grass. And um, to cap it off, they developed a light standard for the community that they called the Mission Bell Luminaire, which was a takeoff on the Mission Bell that was used for the Al Camino Real that was um, conceived of in the early 20th century. You could also see the construction going on of the high school that was just to your right um, with its red tile roof and a church to your left, a first church, a Lutheran church, Mount of Olives. The plan of Mount of Olives was very much like a mission plan. It had the dominant um, church at one end and a long rectangular, single-story building at the other end.
2: Mission Viejo was incorporated in the 80s. Uh, How do you feel that the planning of the town has held up uh, over these last, what, 40 years?
3: Yeah, it it was incorporated in 1988, and the Mission Viejo company was the primary developer up until that time. The company was purchased by Philip Morris in the 70s, and at that it was at that point that the O'Neils got out of Mission Viejo Company. The Mission Viejo Company's original plans, with the exception of Lake Mission Viejo and Saddleback College, um, which were added later, I believe the Mission Viejo the original plans were followed pretty closely in terms of zoning. In terms of architecture, I think I mentioned earlier that you st- started to see more red tile roofs in the '70s. By the '80s, you were you were seeing uh, what could be called uh, a much closer replica to of, of of Spanish colonial revival than we saw in the late '60s. Um, but a, a real mix, I would say, because it, as well you start seeing. Um, much larger homes, the influence of a more contemporary aesthetic as well.
2: So one last question I want to ask you about is you're on the board of Preserve Orange County. When was it started and what's its mission and and what kind of priorities has it had?
3: Preserve Orange County was started in 2016. We're a membership-based organization your, your listeners will be familiar with the LA Conservancy. It's a very similar mission in that we promote the conservation of the architectural heritage and cultural heritage in, in the county. We do a lot of advocacy. Probably most of our time is spent on advocacy, particularly now during the pandemic period when we can't um, conduct any architectural tours, at least in person. Um, and it seems like uh, the threat to historic resources is, <laughs> hasn't let up uh, in recent recent months. So we we spend a lot of time just making our voices heard in uh, at public hearings, uh, mostly in the older cities, obviously where where there's an older building stock, and we find ourselves um, defending a lot of modern buildings, uh, modern commercial vernacular buildings. And we do we we try and also build awareness um, in other ways about the historic built environment. So in our newsletter, which is a quarterly, we get writers who will write, who will do research about architects or about historic sites or or buildings that we believe are eligible. Um, but that have never been designated. We're constantly trying to educate the public about what is here.
2: It must be interesting, too, because, as you said before, Orange County hasn't been written about so much, Uh, so there must be a lot of fertile ground to cover.
3: We didn't invent preservation in Orange County. There have been several organizations spread out in the county, not, not county-wide organizations, but that are tied to individual cities like Fullerton Heritage and the San Clemente Historical Society and, um, you know, Village Laguna. All of these organizations have been around for a very long time doing the work that, that we do county-wide. So our website is www.preserveorangecounty.org.
2: Well, thank you, Krista, for giving me a better sense of that vast area I drive through on the I-5 and some of the history of Orange County. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Save As. Tune in next time when we talk about another part of Southern California that's been largely overlooked and misunderstood, the city of Compton.
0: They threw bricks and stones through windows. They burned crosses. They tried to scare Black folks from being out at night. Like All of the same behaviors that you would have seen anywhere else in the United States also happened in Compton. But the opportunity opened, opened itself up, and there was no turning back no matter what this podcast was produced by willis eidenberg special thanks to mariachi arco iris de los angeles for allowing us to use music from two of their songs crucifijo de pietra y cielo rojo you'll find links to its website and youtube channels in this episode's show notes at saveas.place Our original theme music is by Stephen Conley, and the Save As logo was designed by Fern Vargas. Special thanks to the
1: communications team at the School of Architecture for their support. For more information and show notes, visit our website at saveas.place. Please subscribe. Tell a friend while you're at it. Save As is a production of the Heritage Conservation Program in the School of Architecture at the University of Southern California.